Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 35, the Arab Civil War. The Umayyad dynasty ruled over the Muslim Caliphate after the end of the first Arab Civil War that finally came to an end in 661. At its greatest extent, the Umayyad Caliphate stretched across 11,100,000 square kilometers. From Spain and Morocco in the west, all the way across North Africa to Pakistan in the east, This makes the Umayyad Caliphate one of the biggest empires the world had ever seen. Even though this was a Muslim aristocracy, the overwhelming population of the Caliphate consisted of Christians, especially in Syria. The Muslim conquerors were actually very tolerant towards the Christians and allowed them to practice their religion as long as they paid their Christian tax. This taxable religious freedom also extended to the Jews and Zoroastrians. This is a very tolerant policy considering the time they're living in. The Umayyad Caliphate exploded out of the gates, and they focused their attention on expansion. Muawiyah was a conqueror, and he wanted to turn the Caliphate into an empire. He started out as a governor in Syria and quickly grew to see the entire Roman Empire as his for the taking. His capital was in an old Roman city. His subjects were old Roman citizens. And his eyes were on the Roman Empire. And most of his life was spent trying to take it. Even though the caliphate stretched into both the Roman and Persian empires, Muawiyah tended to focus most of his attention on the West. He wanted to be emperor. And he was doing a good job at achieving his goals. The Umayyad dynasty was similar to the Romans in many ways. Muawiyah had no trouble bending the rules of the caliphate when it suited his purposes. According to the teachings of Muhammad, any religion outside of Islam was to be treated fairly and were given freedoms to practice their religious customs so long as they paid their taxes. But many Christians living in the empire wanted to convert to Islam. Not just to get out of paying their taxes, although that had a lot to do with it, but also because the Islamic faith was very similar to their own. The Muslim book had many of the same people as the Old Testament. And if you were an Aryan Christian living in North Africa, there wasn't much of a leap when switching away from Aryanism to Islam. In fact, Many Christians found Islam to be simpler, but when the Christians converted to Islam, they took away a valuable resource from the caliphate, and Muawiyah was taking notice. He preferred Islam to be the religion for the Arabs, and everyone else to remain Christian. In the beginning, the Umayyads were one of the leading clans in Mecca, and several caliphs before 661 were from the Umayyad clan. Although the Prophet Muhammad started preaching in 610, the Umayyad clan did not convert to Islam until 627. According to one source, they were resistant to his teachings. The Umayyads quickly rose to power and ruled over the caliphate. 
However, like all great empires, eventually the rulers become corrupted, and the first to suffer were the people at the bottom. When the Arabs first conquered the world, they weren't taxing as much as the Romans or the Persians before them, because they didn't need as much money. They were bandits from Arabia, and could get by without all the superfluities of life. Very quickly, though, the Umayyads strangled out any other family from rising to any role of significance and began subjugating those below. Not just the Christians, but other Muslims as well. The Umayyads were starting to look like the imperial families in the Roman Empire, greedily holding on to power and keeping those around them under their thumb. Taxes started to increase, and Christians had to pay more. To get out of paying this ever-increasing tax, many of them converted to Islam. It was the easiest way to get out of the crippling taxes imposed on them. And as more and more people converted to Islam, the tax revenue grew smaller and smaller. Eventually, the Umayyads passed a new tax, a tax for those who converted to Islam. This act really upset the people, because this went against everything the Prophet Muhammad had preached. It was clear that this decision was based on a lust for power and greed. Because Muiyah started off as governor of Syria, his capital was in Damascus, and compared to the large cities in the old Persian Empire, Damascus was small. This allowed the Umayyads to keep the wealth and power of the caliphate in a small city that Muiyah had complete control over. This alienated the Arabs living in Babylonia and Persia, and they began looking at the Umayyads as a family of tyrants bent on hoarding power. During the reign of Muawiyah, an Arab nobleman traveled to the deserts of Jordan in search of a man. The man was once an influential person in the caliphate, but that was many years ago. After fading away from the spotlight, he settled on a small farm and retired in peace, where he lived a quiet life. But this man was important, and the nobleman needed to find him, because only this man could help them overthrow the corruption of the Umayyad Caliphate. And the reason this old farmer was so important was because he was one of the last living relatives of the Prophet Muhammad, Muhammad bin Ali. He was the great-great-grandson of Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, the uncle to the Prophet Muhammad. Because the Umayyads were not related to the great prophet at all, this retired farmer had more claim to the caliphate than any of the Umayyads. The noblemen had traveled across the eastern provinces of the empire, and he heard all of the complaints from the new converts to Islam. They were promised equality, but they got subjugation. They were promised freedom from the Romans, but instead they had a new emperor. Yet they spoke of the greatness of the prophet Muhammad and his family. The noblemen urged the old farmer to use his family lineage to inspire the new converts of Islam to rally behind him so they could one day overthrow the Umayyads and restore the caliphate to the family of Muhammad. Knowing the leaders of the Umayyad caliphate were in Syria, it was too dangerous to start the rebellion nearby. So the two men traveled to the far east of the caliphate in modern-day Turkmenistan, where they had a safe distance from Muawiyah's men. This land was on the edge of the Iranian plateau and the Eurasian steppe, where thousands of tribes and many different cultures traded. 
Sasanians, Arabs, Turks, and even Chinese merchants frequented this part of the world. It was literally located in the center of the Silk Road. One thing that made this region different from the rest of the caliphate was how quickly the people assimilated to Islamic culture. Almost the entire region had converted to Islam by the year 700, which meant that very few were still paying the non-Muslim tax. So when the Umayyads made all converts to Islam pay the tax, it was this location that was angered the most. The region we call Iraq and Iran today, and the people who lived there, converted to Islam, but they were not Arab. And the Umayyad Arabs made sure they knew that. In all of the major cities in the caliphate, small fortress cities were erected to house Arab overlords. These cities were forbidden to the non-Arab Muslims. However, in Iraq and Iran, where the Arabs were a much smaller minority, they left these fortress cities and mingled among the general population, even marrying local women and taking part in foreign cultural practices. Now, even though marriage between Arabs and non-Arabs was considered to be illegal by the Umayyads, Arabs in Babylon and Persia were assimilating with the locals, and they were becoming less Arab. It was such a cultural melting pot that the Arab overlords started to dress like the Persians. And I can't help but think of Alexander the Great and how quickly he adopted the dress and customs of the Persians once he had taken the land for himself. It is in this small corner of the world, which was called Khorasan at the time, where the two Muslim travelers looked to start a revolution and set up their base of operations in an ancient city called Merv, which was located north of the Iranian mountains on the edge of the Eurasian steppe, along a major river that flowed out of the mountains and into the Caspian Sea. And they made this their new home. And they didn't start fast and rush into armed conflict with the Umayyads, but instead, they slowly spread their message among the local population that a living member of Muhammad's family was here with them. And if they supported him, then the Umayyads would lose their claim to rule. And one of the messages spread throughout the city was that the Umayyads only gained power in the first place by killing the only living descendant of Muhammad. Now, and even though Arabs and non-Arab Muslims resonated with this message, it was the Sasanian noble families particularly that got behind them. The Sasanian nobles were old enough to remember a time when they were in charge, and this was their opportunity to get back their power. In 717, the Caliph Umar II recognizing the discontent between the Arab elite and the conquered people of their great empire, tried to rectify the situation by breaking down some of the social economic barriers to non-Muslims. Umar II is known to history as a just governor. He knew the problem needed to be addressed. However, when he attempted to bring reforms, he angered his noble family, and they quickly plod to get rid of him. Not all the reforms of Umar were controversial, and we will go over some of them now. Umar II encouraged education and even offered state payments to teachers. 
He created state-sponsored programs to look after orphans and the destitute. His aim was to better the moral compass of the general population and instituted a strict ban on alcohol, public nudity, and made separate bathrooms for men and women. He also made sure that all business practices were ethical for both consumer and seller. He built roads, houses, medical buildings, and canals in the eastern provinces of Persia and Central Asia. Umar II ordered the first collection of the Hadith, which were holy books written by those who knew Muhammad the best. The Hadiths are like the Gospels in Christianity. Books not written by Jesus, but by those who knew him. Unlike the Gospels, the Hadith were actually written by people who knew Muhammad, men who rode with him and spoke with him and shared meals with him, whereas the Gospels were written by people who only heard about Jesus. Amor II also made it illegal for state officials to enter into private business. He made unpaid labor illegal. He also took the game reserves owned by Arab nobles and distributed them among the poor peasants so they could grow crops on the land. He urged all of his officials to listen to the complaints of the people and even rewarded peasants for reporting officers abusing their use of power, especially when they were being cruel. But the one that most offended Umayyad dynasty was the abolishment of the new tax on non-Muslims who converted to Islam. In 720, Umar II was poisoned by one of his servants who was hired by his relatives. The poison didn't kill him right away and on his deathbed, Umar II pardoned the servant who poisoned him. He was only 37 years old. One thing to keep in mind is that Umar II was the caliph during the 717 siege of Constantinople, where the Arabs were finally defeated by the Byzantines at the walls of Constantinople. Up until now, the Umayyads had been unstoppable. And perhaps it was the act of failing to conquer the Roman capital that really sealed his fate. And he might have been able to survive the failure to conquer the Roman Empire on its own. But both of these combined made the Umayyads question Umar's divine right to rule. Because the Umayyads were unstoppable before him, it was easy for the rest of the Arabs to accept the draconian laws of the Umayyad dynasty. But now that they were losing, it was time for Umar to go. When he finally succumbed to the poison, he was replaced by Yazid II. Yazid II unlike his predecessor, was not pious. In fact, he liked to drink and loved prostitutes. There is one story where his wife saw a slave girl he fancied, so she purchased her as a gift to her husband, and while he was tossing grapes into her mouth, she choked on one and died. Yazid is also known for enacting his own version of iconoclasm, issuing the edict in 724. He was told that if he banned all Christian icons, he would reign for 40 years. In 724, Yazid II, only a week after issuing his edict, died, and he was succeeded by his brother Hisham, who was in his mid-thirties. It was only two years later, in 726, that Emperor Leo III 
issued his edicts against the worship of icons. Under Hisham's rule, the caliphate, for the first time in its entire existence, was on the defensive. As the powers on its frontier were starting to organize and fight back, the Franks in the west, the Byzantines and Khazars in the north, and the Turks to the east were all fighting active wars against the Umayyads. In 732, the Franks defeated the Umayyads in the Battle of Tours, which was a major setback and stopped all progression into the European continent. The Khazars, a nomadic steppe tribe, invaded the Caliphate from the Caucasus and pillaged Muslim lands. The Turks invaded the Central Asian provinces in modern-day Turkmenistan. In 737, the Turks were finally defeated and kicked out of Khorasan. They were only defeated because a local Persian nobleman organized a proper military response. And these Persian noblemen were not loyal to the Umayyads. And when they won their battle against the Turks, it legitimized them in the local area. In 740 CE, the tensions between the Umayyads and the rest of the population finally came to a boil. Full-scale rebellion occurred in Babylon against the Umayyads. And while this fighting was going on, the Abbasids lay in hiding and waited patiently for their time to reveal themselves. It was very important not to offer the cure too early, or else the people might not accept it. But with all the civil unrest, the time was quickly approaching. It was a good thing the Abbasids didn't reveal themselves either, because the fighting in Babylon was close to the capital in Syria, and a swift military response crushed the rebellion. In the same year, in North Africa, the Berbers led a massive revolt against their Umayyad rulers. The Berbers were rapidly becoming more and more Muslim, and they grew to despise their Umayyad tyrants, who refused to allow them to rise in political office. And because the Berbers were key in the initial Arab conquests, this felt like a huge betrayal. In 742, Caliph Hashim sent soldiers from Syria to crush the Berbers in North Africa. However, this campaign failed miserably, and the Umayyad survivors of the battle barely escaped west. They found refuge in Spain and were able to settle, but they were now completely cut off from the rest of the caliphate. The defeat against the Berbers caused a breakaway Islamic state, which caused irreversible damage to the once great Umayyad Caliphate. The once invincible Umayyad dynasty was now losing battles on every front, both from outside and from within. Hashim knew his empire was in trouble. In 743, at the age of 52, Hisham died, leaving the caliphate to his nephew Walid II. Walid was not a pious man. He loved to drink excessively and had a soft spot for prostitutes and poetry. Poetry sounds nice now, but if you consider hip-hop as also poetry, 
you can see why some might think it was unbecoming of a caliph. He also loved horse races. His actions angered the royal family and a plot to assassinate him quickly emerged. One man came to warn Walid about a plot to kill him. And instead of listening to him, Walid captured him and handed him over to the Yemeni tribe in southern Arabia to be tortured to death. This led to an all-out war between the Arabs' tribes. In 744, an armed group of men besieged his personal castle, and although Walid fought bravely, he was cut down with his men, and Yazid III, his cousin, took up the mantle as caliph. Yazid called himself a reformer like Umar II, and even refused to squander money on lavish projects, and promised not to keep the military on endless campaigns to save money and to limit taxes on the people to lessen their burden. However, it was too little, too late, and a full-scale rebellion rose across the caliphate. And only six months into his reign, Yazid III was murdered. On December 4, 744, Marwan II took the mantle of caliph and ruled over the Umayyad Caliphate during the height of the civil war. In 747, in the city of Merv, on the eastern frontiers of the Caliphate, the Abbasids finally showed their hand and raised a black flag. They chose the black flag because it was a stark contrast to the white banners of the Umayyad dynasty. Because the Abbasids had been working for decades underground and never surfaced before, when they finally showed themselves, they came out in great numbers. The Abbasid revolution had begun. Because they knew the frustrations of the people and the suppression of non-Arabs by the Umayyads, the Abbasids allowed Greek, Persian, and Turk to fight alongside them in their multi-ethnic army. In less than a month of fighting, the volunteer army grew to over 7,000 men. In 748, after years of bloody civil war, Marwan II finally claimed victory over his enemies, and the Third Arab Civil War came to an end. Unfortunately for him, the fighting had almost completely destroyed the rich lands of the Caliphate. This was also a very short-lived victory, as the Abbasid armies in the east toppled the Umayyad government in Merv. Almost as soon as the civil war was over, Marwan II learned of the Abbasid rebellion. In 749, a devastating earthquake destroyed most of the cities in the heart of the Caliphate. And as ancient people believed at that time, earthquakes were a sign of God's anger. Following the earthquake, the Abbasid army stormed out of Merv and swept down into Persia and Babylon, defeating the crumbling Umayyad dynasty in every city. The wave of rebellion was spreading. Once Babylon fell to the rebels, the people declared Abu Abbas as their new caliph. In 750, Abu Abbas discovered that there were people among his ranks who were not happy he took the title of caliph and several tribes who had backed him during the revolution started to fight against him. In response, Abu Abbas directed the killing of everyone who opposed his new title. 
It is said that 50,000 men were killed in this cleansing. Although modern scholars think that number to be highly inflated, even so, there is no doubt that the killings were massive. With all of his challengers dead, and an entire battle-hardened army behind him, Abu Abbas marched into Syria to challenge Marwan. When they met in battle, the Abbasids formed up into a giant phalanx and stood their ground in tight formation against the Umayyad cavalry. And because of the great discipline of their army, they held their ground. And the cavalry broke as they crashed into the wall of spears. The defeat sealed the fate of the Umayyad Caliphate, and the Abbasids stormed the capital and raided the royal palace. Seeing there was no way to win, Marwan and his family fled Damascus and tried to make it to North Africa, possibly to join the stronghold in Spain. But Abbasid trackers caught up to them in Egypt and killed them all. All across the caliphate, the Abbasids hunted down and killed every relative of Marwan II. Many of them were even tricked into surrendering with the promise of being allowed to live in exile. But as soon as the Umayyad family members surrendered, they were betrayed and cut down. Out of the entire family, only one member survived, an Umayyad prince. He managed to escape through North Africa and seek refuge in the last holdout of the Umayyads in modern-day Spain. Once the prince was safe there, he set up his own independent caliphate, or emirate, of Al-Andalus, which lasted for another 300 years. The new Abbasid Caliphate set up their headquarters in Babylon, shifting power out of Syria and into the east. This new caliphate adopted an eastern look that made them look more Persian than Arab. They set up their headquarters on the edge of the Silk Road, where they became rich with silks and silvers, and made enormous wealth by brokering all trade between the East and the West. It was under the Abbasid Caliphate that the Golden Age of Islam came to rise. It is now that the city of Baghdad was founded, and at its height had a population of over 1.2 million people. It was an economic hub situated in the narrow field between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. The walled city flourished with canals and gardens. The golden age of Islam led to the foundation of schools of medicine and doctors and science. It is during the Abbasid Caliphate that family doctors came to be. A specific scholar stated that it was a waste of time for people to see many doctors over time when they could have a single doctor who knew their patient's body and habits so that proper treatment could be given. At first, the doctors of the caliphate were made up of Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians, but the Muslim doctors studied the works of their predecessors and eventually evolved the practice further. The biggest medical writing came from Avicenna, who wrote the Canon of Medicine, which was such an important text that it was still used until the mid-17th century. Science under the Abbasids also flourished, as ancient texts on astronomy and geometry and philosophy were translated into Arabic in the Great Library, or House of Wisdom. Scholars were invited from all over the world to translate ancient texts into Arabic, 
and they were paid an enormous amount of money to do so. The amount of money these people were paid is equivalent to what we pay our professional athletes now. They were translating texts from Greek, Persian, Indian, and Syriac, and they wanted every topic they could get their hands on. The first observatory was founded during the Islamic Golden Age, and with the introduction of the Ptolemaic astronomy, Arabic astronomers were able to expand, and in some ways, correct his work. They tracked the movement of the five planets, the sun, and the moon, and many stars today still bear the original Arabic names. A self-playing musical instrument was developed during this time, and although we don't know exactly what it was, a self-playing musical instrument would be the equivalent of having a radio. It meant you just turned on the device and music came out. Whatever this device was, it was quite an achievement, and it sounds pretty cool. From translating the Hindu texts into Arabic, the Arabic numerals were discovered, which led to the development of algebra. And algebra is an Arabic word. And this discipline was based off of Euclid's theorem, the ability to translate texts from Greek in the West and Hindi in the East allowed the Islamic scientists to merge the doctrines and create advanced forms of science. This was a time of great scholarly production, creativity, and tolerance in the Islamic world. And to think, this is all going on during what we would call the Dark Ages of Europe. If you were going to be alive during this time period, the best place to live would be Baghdad. However, the new Abbasid Caliphate, which was now in control of the Silk Road, would find itself coming face to face with another great empire. This one was located much further to the east and wasn't exhausted like the Romans and Persians. The Chinese Empire of the Tang Dynasty also had their eyes set on the Silk Road and they were watching the chaos of the Abbasid Revolution and saw this as their moment to attack. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.